I've been asked to respond to an article written by Ian McFarland on the fall in sin. It is a topic that is rather near and dear to my heart because it addresses one of my all-time heroes in theology, Augustine of Hippo. As many will know, Augustine is a cornerstone of my own undergraduate and graduate studies into theology. I credit Augustine as being a part of my own personal coming to faith in the historical Jesus as God, and a part of my own development in my conviction that the biblical narrative is reliable and is philosophically coherent. This being said, Augustine is not above critique. In fact, Augustine, like any church father or mother, is an individual who is a product of their time and their culture. And McFarland is correct in offering three modes of critique of Augustine's doctrine of original sin. Well, where to begin? Probably in the beginning, in Genesis. Except the idea of a first sin or an original sin isn't just found in Genesis. Yes, we have the narrative of Adam and of Eve and of the fruit and of the serpent, but we also really don't have a systematized theology of what that sin entails given directly in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, contemporary evangelical scholars like Michael Heiser will refer not just to one fall from grace, the sin of Adam, but also refer to Genesis 6, what happened with the watchers, the Nephilim, and of course to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And the way that these rebellions, these cosmic events, lead to the arrival of death and destruction over the whole human family. To this day, the fall of Adam is understood differently in Jewish communities and is not necessarily understood in the exact same light now as it was in Second Temple Judaism, the very bedrock of the Christian New Testament. Therefore, it is the way in which Genesis 3 is read by particularly Paul and the other authors of the New Testament, which gives us the idea that this sin in Genesis has wide and far-reaching influences. Particularly in Romans 5, as McFarland aptly points out, do we see that just as death was introduced into the human world by Adam, now this necessitates the arrival of Jesus to pay for our death on the cross. Now, nowhere in Romans 5 is this death specified as biological death, rather than perhaps spiritual death or moral death, but the implication remains quite heavy. The literal blood of Jesus of Nazareth had, in Paul's mind, to be shed on that cross because of what Adam did at the very beginning of the ages. We find this in Paul's later reflections, or earlier reflections, depending on when you date these texts, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and throughout the corpus of the whole New Testament. In the early church fathers, in Irenaeus, in Polycarp, in 1 Clement, in Justin Martyr, we see the great emphasis on the atonement of Christ being in response to the condition of death. And as the church fathers and mothers develop their thought throughout the centuries, their eyes turn backward to the 
first sin that caused or necessitated the events that followed. But as McFarlane correctly notes, it really is in Augustine, the 4th century church father, that we have the formulation of a theory that this first sin is congenital, causes a deformation. These are terms that McFarland uses. And that this kind of concupiscence, this tendency towards woundedness, even towards pride in Augustine's mind, think if you've read the Confessions to the Theft of the Pears, that this begins in Adam but is passed on to all of his descendants, leaving us in a cosmic ditch, necessitating our need for a personal savior, grace through faith, if you will. And Augustine's thinking, of course, develops over time. But as McFarland once again correctly notes, it is in reaction to the writings and work of Pelagius, a 4th century British monk who appears to have taught something like works righteousness, that you could work your way into heaven. Now, it is very clear in McFarland's mind that this Western understanding of original sin is in distinction somewhat from ancestral sin in the Orthodox churches, where the idea of personal culpability or depravity as a result of the fall is rejected in place of this idea that the first or ancestral sin of Adam has had far-reaching cosmic influences, necessitating God's incarnation, death, and resurrection, culminating in theosis or deification. McFarland doesn't go into this incredible detail, but in later work I would love to discuss the Eastern Church's discussion of the ancestral sin and its foundational role in eschatology and in anthropology. Regardless, Augustine's worldview, his belief in the deformation and wounding of the human soul and psyche as a result of the fall on a personal and intimate level, had widespread influence in the medieval church. We see the necessity for grace and faith re-emerging in 16th century re-readings of Augustine by Martin Luther, Chemnitz, Melanchthon, and of course, with a particular reading of Augustine by John Calvin. <laughs> and as a result, it influencing our social institutions, our churches. And therein lies the problem for McFarland. There are three major points of critique. The evolutionary biological, arguing that, well, Augustine's historic reading of Genesis is now defunct and no longer in usage, because how can we read of a time when death was not, when we know biologically that death preceded the arrival of Homo sapiens? The moral reading, how can we claim that we have free will if we are morally enslaved to death? The sociopolitical reading, hasn't this original sin business caused the oppression and the systemized harm of marginalized communities? Now, I would be here until Kingdom Come if I was to summarize all of McFarland's critiques. And I believe others can more aptly address the moral, philosophical implications of free will. And I believe others could address more succinctly a critique of the critique of the ways in which churches have abused their power 
particularly against the marginalized in light of this doctrine. <laughs> However, I have a question in light of the first part, the evolutionary biological point of view. McFarland refers at one point to a historic reading of Genesis, a historic reading of the fall as fallacious. My question to McFarland is, can we really call a historic reading of Genesis and the fall and the idea of a primordial sin as fallacious? And in doing so, don't we accomplish a harmful misreading of the Bible on a pastoral approach. Now, what do I mean by this? Just to spell it out a little bit. Well, if the fall from grace isn't somehow historical, if there was no historic event, let's not even call it the fall of persons, but just an event for a moment, that caused a kind of singularity that led to the arrival of at least moral death or a moral failing that we all participate in, then why would we need a personal savior in Jesus anyway? Then Pelagius would be right, and we would be able simply to work our way up to heaven. And then secondarily, if we teach that the fall is ahistoric, then what does that mean for the rest of the Bible, particularly the very end, our eschatology, where we would argue that God so loved the world he not only has given his only begotten son for our salvation, but also too is making all things new. And in making all things new is going to restore an Eden-like state at the end of time. So just to rephrase or repeat my question, is a historic reading of the fault necessarily fallacious in light of evolutionary biology? And what are the implications of these readings on a pastoral viewer approach to uh, the topic of sin in the fall? Well, what is clear to me is that McFarland strongly believes that the current biological tends towards polygenesis instead of monogenesis, the rejection that we are descendants of one biological couple but of several couples over time, families of early hominids, uh, and that his reading of macro evolutionary biology um, is something which he takes to be beyond dispute. And there is, of course, trends within the Christian world to read Genesis in a wooden and literal way. To say, well, the text says day, therefore it must mean a 24-hour day. Or to say, well, the Bible says there was no death before Adam, therefore it must mean there's no biological death before Adam. And simply to say, well, we need to throw reason out the window and surrender reason to faith. All that matters is belief in the text, and there is nothing wrong with the text. It just has to do with our reading of material science. I am, and I need to repeat this, I am in no way saying we need to become fundamentalists and read this as a wooden or literalistic historical narrative on one hand. <laughs> on the other hand, what is very plain to me is that there are certain things that our material scientific research cannot determine for us. Through material sciences, for example, we cannot prove or disprove the existence of miracles. My personal conviction 
that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead cannot be proven under a microscope. I do have an empty tomb in Jerusalem. I do have eyewitness testimony. I believe that it happened. I think it is, for me, overwhelmingly uh, positive evidence for us to look at. But you cannot, through the lens of material or empirical science, determine that. It's something that material science cannot determine. Equally, I would argue that when you're dealing with the concept of a world before biological death, an Eden, as it were, a state-like Eden, would such a world, if it ever existed, would such a world leave behind footprints or remains? Is it possible that God created a state where there were two individuals? Are they the, are they the direct ancestors of all the human family or representative of them only? Can be a discussion for another time. But did he create a state in which two individuals made a cosmic choice that then had massive ramifications for the rest of humanity? Would such a place necessitate, for example, um, a reading of a world before any fossils or any records? I strongly believe that this is an area which material science cannot definitively prove nor disprove. The other element, which I think we need to be very cautious about, very, very cautious about, is arguing that we know for certain, absolutely for certain, that the narrative in Genesis, the idea of a fall from grace, um, does not in any way, shape, or form have anything to do with historical geography or place. Um, the text in Genesis chapter 2 gives a description of four rivers. The Tigris and Euphrates do literally historically exist. Uh, there might have been a historical event that occurred in that geographical region that um, either precipitates or underlies the biblical text. So to try and argue vigorously that it either literally happened or literally didn't happen um, ignores the complexity of the text, strongly ignores the complexity of the text. What is very clear to me is that what is needed in our discussion of the fall is that there was a fall that did occur at the beginning of human experience, that it did occur through the agency of, at bare minimum, two individuals discussed, and that from them, a kind of moral separation or decline occurred, which is met by the atonement at the cross. I personally, I'm just speaking for myself here, I'm not putting this on anyone. I personally think that this could have easily necessitated the atonement, the death of the Son of God, because biological death might have descended from that moral choice. And that that moral choice is not left behind necessarily biological fingerprints or footprints. However, good theologians such as the late popes, John Paul II and Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, have vigorously argued that it doesn't necessarily have to be a biological death at all, but instead a moral separation from God. And that reconciliation is what is accomplished at the cross. In either case, the reason why I find this pastorally concerning is because if I say, well, the first three chapters is simply patriarchal mythology, 
Um, it's simply a matter of um, a condition that is potentially psychological, but even then, uh, perhaps even psychologically unhelpful. The moment I write it off as simply uh, a contested work of ancient Bronze Age fan fiction, as it were. And I'm not suggesting that McFarland is saying that, by the way, but that's just how many tend to read the text. Then what I'm also saying is that God's promise in the book of Revelation, of the apocalypse, uh, is equally of all tribes and all tongues and all nations living in harmony, raised biologically in deathless bodies at the end of time, that that too is a matter of mythology and fiction. And I cannot in good conscience say that because Paul the Apostle, who is much closer to the uh, events of Jesus of Nazareth than I am, certainly believes in 1 Corinthians 15 that he will, again, in a resurrected body, see Jesus and be with the rest of the saints in glory at the end of time. And whoever the author of Revelation is, I'm still of the the minority of, of, of people out there who would argue that it, it is John, the son of Zebedee, but uh, whoever the author is, um, I would agree with them that there is going to be a, that cosmic reunion. So I believe that we return to that place. Now, the mechanics of how that occurred, I think is something that the material sciences can offer us. And I don't think we need to throw out reason in order to embrace faith. I don't think we need to throw out material science in order to adopt um, a, a faith position. I think both can be wed together, uh, but we need to be open. And I want to emphasize as we finish this, one of the most amazing and exciting thing for me is to find out how surprised I am of how wrong I have been about many readings of the Bible and of theology. It is wonderful to discover the areas in which we thought we've got it, but we actually failed to perceive things from a broader angle. Augustine himself didn't have a literal reading of Genesis, by the way. He, um, in his discussion of Genesis, uh, reads it largely allegorically or symbolically. It's interesting to me that there was a lot of emphasis of that allegorical reading earlier in the writing of Ambrose. So the, the element we have here is even among the the supposed big bad uh, author behind the doctrine of, of original sin, historically understood, even in Augustine, we don't have necessarily a, a wooden reading of the text. So it, it's exciting to find all these areas in our life and in our exploration of theology, the areas in which God is expanding and causing greater nuance in our reading of the text. So I encourage all of us, with a lot of intellectual humility, as we explore these ideas, to simply be open to the Holy Spirit's um, interaction. And as we discover more things in material science, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, uh, to use an English Western American phrase, but instead to try to wed faith and reason uh, in a way that allows us to understand these topics more profoundly. You know, McFarland is one of the greatest theologians of the contemporary era. I'm a learner. I'm only a student. Uh, and I think that he's done an extraordinary job at explicating these themes and ideas. Um, whether or not Augustine really is the author of the idea of depravity or a deformation of the human person in the fall, 
I would have some critiques with. I think his ideas developed over time, like any of our ideas develop over time in young Augustine and later Augustine uh, stand on different uh, views of the idea of human agency, free will, and grace. But I will argue fervently that the critiques offered in this article allow us a deeper window, a profound window, into the ways in which we have perhaps uh, misread our Bibles because of our cultural traditions and backgrounds and ways for us to broaden our horizon, to be critical of our own traditions, but also, too, to be critical of our own criticism so that we don't fall into um, an overly skeptical worldview. All right. I hope that this has been helpful. I look forward to hearing from all of you soon. God bless.